Myth vs. Medicine, Debunking Grey's Anatomy is an educational and entertainment podcast created and produced by Anna Zarov and Olivia Horrigan. If you would like to know more about our show, check out our website at mythvsmedpod.com and join our email list. If you enjoy our show, be sure to leave a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform. Now let's get on to the episode. Ever wonder what happens when a patient first comes into the emergency room? Find out on this week's episode of Myth vs. Medicine, Debunking Grey's Anatomy. I'm Anna. And I'm Olivia. And we're medical students at the University of Michigan. Join us as we unpack the next episode of one of our favorite medical dramas, Grey's Anatomy. It's a beautiful day to learn what is myth and what is medicine. Disclaimer. Our thoughts and opinions may not reflect those of the University of Michigan hospital system or the University of Michigan Medical School and are not intended to be used in place of medical advice. We are currently in training and are not qualified to provide medical advice. Please consult your doctor for medical management or further questions. Please note that the following podcast contains discussions and references to sensitive topics including sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised, and if you or someone you know is affected by these issues, please seek appropriate professional help or support resources. Okay, welcome back to Myth vs. Medicine. My gosh, I'm so excited for this episode. There is so much that went down in this episode that I cannot wait to talk about. I know, about. so let's get into it. All right, I'll start out with an episode summary. So the episode starts with Meredith putting up flyers to try to find a roommate. Um, and then in the episode, we see Meredith and Derek taking care of a patient who was sexually assaulted and who we soon learn bit off her assailant's penis during the attack. And then Meredith has to carry around the penis until the police arrives for the remainder of the episode. Other things in this episode include Izzy taking care of an undocumented Chinese patient, Meredith noticing a baby turning blue in the nursery and attempting to take action as the interns all continue to struggle to find their place in the hospital. Well, that was actually a wonderful summary, to be honest. (laughs) Thank you. All right. So should we start with our quick catches? Yes, we should. Which is your favorite one that we should start talking about first? Okay, I actually think I have a good one that would be a good place to start because we talked a little bit about it in the last episode, but I think this is just a good general knowledge to have for all of the mm-hmm. episodes, which is just the general structure of teams at a hospital oh <laughs> and like how this show just completely oh, ignores yes. that. So yeah, I mean, Olivia, do you want to explain just generally how structure works? Like if you're a new surgical intern, what would your regular schedule look like in terms of like rotations and the teams that you're well, on? Yeah, I mean, and, and it totally depends on what service you're on. But normally, if you're an intern, you're on a set team for like month rotations at a time. And you'll be doing like right. the same thing almost every day. So like you'll come in really early and you'll round on your patients, which is basically going and seeing the patients in the morning, seeing how they're doing, seeing what kind of surgeries are lined up for the day, taking care of any patients that are in the hospital after surgery. I mean, All these sorts of things that are related to the team and not going down to the emergency room and stitching people up or giving a bunch of random people lab results like we see Christina and Alex Literally. (laughs) So bizarre. Well, and like there are lots of different teams. So like if you are a general surgery intern, you are supposed to be like discovering all the different parts of surgery so that you can eventually decide what kind of surgeon you want to be. So you're going from month to month onto different services. So like one month you might be on cardio surgery and one month you might be on GI surgery or trauma surgery, but it's not like it's just a free for all Mm -hmm. where every intern is on the same team, but also on different services and also doing different jobs every day. It just is incredibly disorganized. Yeah. So it's very 
unrealistic in that aspect, but it makes it more entertaining for us because then we just get to see all parts of the hospital and what each intern is doing. Yeah, totally. I was just going to say, I think one of the funniest parts of this episode is when Christina and Alex are running around to different patients and giving them like lab results and test results and kind of new diagnoses or lack thereof. And the the fact that Mm -hmm. the patients are always so happy to hear this good news, they're giving Christina and Alex hugs and Christina and Alex at this point are just treating it as a game. They're like, how fast can we do this and like get out of the hospital? (laughs) It's so weird though. Like normally your doctor is going to give you your lab results or diagnoses. Like it's not like some random intern just walks into your room and is like, you're fine. Bye. So that part is, yeah, a little bit, a little bit odd, but. Yeah, that would never happen. Yeah. Well, and same with like George is carrying around the trauma oh, gosh, pager and like started. running codes. <laughs> but like he's not on a trauma service because, well, apparently there is no trauma service. There's, There's just service. everyone does whatever yeah. they want. Well, not only is he not on the trauma service, but he's a first year intern. No one in their right mind would want like a first year intern running uh, the code pager. Running all the codes. So, uh, usually, like how do codes work in your opinion, Anna? Like is the intern in charge? Like who is in charge when you show up to a code? There, there's an attending yep. in charge um, who, as we had talked a little bit about last time, the attending is like the top guy, the, <laughs> what the top brass, <laughs> the fully certified doctor, the fully certified doctor that is not freshly out of med school, like the interns. Yeah. And one of our main topics today is going to be about running a trauma code and kind of the steps that you take. So we'll talk about that and the different roles in that. But you know, the intern is not just by themselves running a code. So safe to say this episode did not depict George in a realistic light. You know, it rarely <laughs> does, this show. But he's doing his best. Right, what other quick catches did you have? Well, I also mentioned what you were saying about suturing. Like, I think it was really bizarre that they were like, oh, yeah, we're going to just go have a surgery intern go to the ER and do all of the sutures. Mm-hmm. Because generally, ER doctors are just fine doing the sutures. Oh, yes. And sometimes there's a case where there is like a more severe laceration or cut that needs to be sewn up or like there's concern that it would leave a really big scar if they just did it there in the ER. And in that case, you would consult plastic surgery Yeah, and you would get a plastic surgery, at least resident, maybe attending to come and do that more nicely if they're Mm -hmm. worried about like it looking okay, there being a scar or if it's more near a sensitive area um but otherwise they are doing it in the ed and they're definitely not just calling a random gen surge intern to just do all the stitches exactly speaking of her doing stitches when she went to the parking lot to help take care of the undocumented chinese patient she literally Mm -hmm. did the stitches and then put iodine on after she put the stitches in oh my god i didn't even notice that oh my gosh it cracked me up iodine is an, an antiseptic that you put on before sutures or like before a surgery to help cleanse the area yeah but she ideally should have put that on before the stitches <laughs> and there would be no reason to do it after so I just thought that was funny oh my god that is so funny wait so on that note this was something that I put down under kind of ethical dilemmas in this episode and I do think that this is a legitimate ethical dilemma given that this patient was not willing to come inside they were very fearful and in need of medical attention 
But the concept of even an attending treating a patient in the rain behind a dumpster and like doing a sterile procedure because mm-hmm. you're stitching somebody up, you want to have a sterile environment. Exactly. And while that's not always possible, this felt like a particularly bad place to do it. Yeah, I can um, see that. It's it's kind of ludicrous <laughs> that she's like, you know, let's hide behind this dumpster and stitch you up. Like, literally, just in the rain, covered in trash. Yes, yeah. She also is an intern. She has no supervision. And clearly, she doesn't quite know what she's doing, given that she put the iodine on last. Apparently. I do see where Izzy wanted to do the right thing and do right by this patient Mm -hmm. who was in need of medical attention and otherwise was not going to get medical attention. Definitely. And... I think from her perspective, she was probably like, I would rather help this patient here and make sure she's not going to get like a life-threatening infection from not getting this sewn up than just leaving her out here. Yeah. But even she said, like, if anybody finds out that I did this, I could lose my job, which is honestly like maybe the least of my concerns in this case. So I'm just thinking, what if something went wrong in this case? What if Izzy had slipped while she was suturing? Now the patient is bleeding. Mm -hmm. Something had gotten infected. What does she do then? Uh, exactly. It just seems very dangerous. Very dangerous. And and I don't know if she really thought about all of the consequences of her actions if something did go wrong. So I think that in her case, I think it's a great thing that she did not mess up <laughs> because I really don't know what would have right. happened. And I mean, I do understand that she had the patient's well-being in mind mm-hmm. and that she was doing what she thought she could do to best help this patient, given that this patient was not willing to come into the hospital. Like, I think that she was well-meaning. I just... I think that she had, like, a a moral obligation, but to another extent, she was also, like, taking supplies from the hospital and doing things that definitely were not, I guess, standard, is one way to say it. Right. Well, and there are laws in place. There's a law that says if you are out in public and somebody needs medical attention that you're able to give, that you can give your best attempt at helping them without there being legal consequences. But is that different, though? Because, I mean, she's on her shift at the hospital, and she's purposely going to this place. It's not like it just happened upon her, and she's like, oh, look, there's a... Right, no, I don't think that this would fall under that law. Mm -hmm. I don't think it would fall under that law, especially given that she's using hospital resources. She is on the clock at work. Yeah. And also the patient is on hospital property. But, like, if I were to have a heart attack on a plane... Mm -hmm. And you were the only doctor on the plane and your specialty is not in treating people in cardiac arrest, but you're a doctor Mm -hmm. and you're the best person who can help that person. You should help that person and you're not going to get sued if that person dies. Yeah. Well, to get back to quick catches, what else do you have on your list? Yeah. So I think another favorite part of this episode for me was a scene in a surgery where we saw the endotracheal tube, which is a tube that they put down your throat for when you're put to sleep for surgery. Usually it's mm-hmm. secured with like really, really heavy duty tape and they tape it in a very certain way so that it stays where it's supposed to, doesn't slip and slide around. Mm-hmm. But in this circumstance, all you see is just regular scotch tape just wound up around the ET tube. <laughs> Oh my god. Wait, I have something about a endotracheal tube also, actually. Oh my gosh, no way. What's yours? Yeah, when the patient, Allison, who is kind of the primary case in this episode, first comes into the ER and it shows her she's already intubated, mm-hmm. meaning she already has this tube down her throat and nobody is bagging her, meaning nobody is squeezing that bag that is putting oxygen in it, <laughs> which means the only way that this patient is breathing 
assumes that she has been intubated and already hooked up to a ventilator. Mm. And Meredith comes down and she takes control of the code and she goes, call respiratory for a ventilator. (laughs) And I'm like, first of all, if they don't have a ventilator, how does she, she just has this tube down her throat and is just just, in respiratory. Just chilling there? She's just not breathing. Like, yeah. Like she's clearly already on a ventilator. And then the camera pans and you see somebody else who's holding a machine with like tubes and the screen that I'm not positive, but I would assume is the ventilator. Oh, at like the same time that Meredith is like, somebody call for a ventilator, but the patient is already intubated and somebody else is already holding a ventilator. But is it doing anything? That's the question. I mean, unclear, but the sense I got was that they were trying to show that this is an emergent situation, which means there's a patient with a tube down their throat and people are carrying medical supplies with other tubing. But it just didn't sync up with the lines that were scripted. It really did. And I just thought that it was so funny. I literally kept on pausing and going back, being like, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? Does this make sense or am I crazy? You're like, wait, wait, And wait. I think it just did not make sense. <laughs> All right. Well, that was definitely something I didn't see. So good catch on that one. Yeah, it was good. The other one I really liked that felt like they were trying to show us what was happening medically, but didn't really think it through that much, was in the scene when when they're operating on this patient, Burke is holding a clamp, and it's, like, in the patient, and he's jamming it around in the patient, and he is just, like, looking around and having conversations and talking to people. He's not looking at what he's doing, and is literally just jamming this clamp around in the patient, like, mindlessly. Like, really did not even try to make it look like he was really operating yeah right isn't this what he goes to acting school for you would think you would think that they maybe would at least have tried to make him do a better job yeah yeah so i don't know i think that at least he should have known to not be moving the tool around like crazy while he's talking to other people and looking away from it like you might as well be operating with your eyes closed exactly do you have any other quick catches All right, so I don't have a quick catch, but I thought that this was really relatable. In the beginning of the episode when Bailey is trying to divvy out responsibilities for the interns, one of her quotes Mm -hmm. that she says, which is almost one of my favorite of the show, she goes, no one holds a scalpel until I'm so happy I'm freaking Mary Poppins. And I feel like this is (laughs) so relatable because I do feel like a lot of the time the job of the intern is to make sure that the resident is both like happy and satisfied and not overworked. And I think that Bailey portrayed yes. that really well in this scene. She does. She definitely takes it a little bit to the most extreme account. But well, yes. <laughs> I do agree. It is sort of the intern's jobs to do the busy work and to do the things that the resident does not want to do. The resident is a happy resident when the interns are scurrying along doing all of their various tasks exactly that in this show are completely unrelated to each other. <laughs> all right so do you have any more quick catches i have one more and it is about the fact that derek throughout this whole episode except for when he's operating really just sits in allison's room all yes! day long and i am so confused about how he has time to do that how is this <laughs> neurosurgeon attending just have time to just sit in this page and he's really sweet about it he's like she doesn't have anybody and I have sisters and my fa- I have this big family and I just I'm sad when patients don't have anybody there for them and I so feel for that but also 
how what else are you doing you do you not have a service literally oh well apparently not apparently there are no services in this show apparently not so he's just he has free for all free reign he doesn't need to be anywhere nope and that's another big thing that that we didn't talk about in the episode summary but a really big plot of this episode was actually the chief spot yeah you're right yeah we come to learn that dr weber actually invited dr shepherd so derek to seattle grace for the possibility of becoming the next chief much to Burke's chagrin because now he's like, wait a minute. I thought that I was next in line to be chief. And so this gives like a whole oh new relationship to Derek and Burke. No. Oh my God. I literally wrote down, imagine going up to your boss and yelling at them and being like, chief of surgery is mine. Like, <laughs> literally, this is what he does. He like, does. Imagine talking to he your does. superior and, like that. And then he has that conversation with Bailey where it's, Honestly, I thought it was so refreshing and really funny to watch. And it's just they're being so open and honest with each other where Burke says, you know what? I love I really want to be chief. So let's figure out what people actually think of me. And he tells Bailey in like similar words says, you know, for the next 30 seconds, I'm not your boss. I won't hold anything that you say against you. And Bailey just goes off. She's like, you're, you're cocky. You're, I don't even know what, I don't even know what else she says. But you're arrogant. You're, you're arrogant. Yeah. You have a God complex. I think you're cocky, arrogant, bossy, and pushy. You also have a God complex. You never think about anybody but your damn self. But, I, but what? I still have 22 more seconds. I'm not done. And he goes, okay, then. Well, I, so I kind of related to that too at the beginning in when she was just like, no, you're great. Before he was like, 30 seconds and I won't be upset about it. Uh I don't know if you feel this, Olivia, but oftentimes we'll get feedback from the doctors that we're working with and they'll give us feedback and then they'll ask us, do you have any feedback for me? Mm -hmm. And I'm always just like, no, you are great. Yeah, what are we supposed to say? Oh, like, yeah, you suck. I mean, for the case of a med student, they're grading us. For the case of a resident, they're your boss Mm -hmm. and they have control over how the rest of your career goes. I don't think anybody's trying to go out there and be like, yeah, you're the worst. Yeah, like, like let me I tell you I think you're arrogant and have a God complex. Do I think that sometimes? Yes. yes. Am <laughs> I going to tell them? Absolutely not. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we really don't speak our minds a lot of the time. So I thought it was really, like I said, really refreshing to see Burke and Bailey have Really refreshing. Yeah. yeah. No, I like, also loved that yeah. scene. Yeah. Okay, Olivia, do you want to introduce our first topic? All right. So first topic is going to be the woman that comes into the hospital who looks like she's been the victim of some kind of assault and does not seem to be doing very well. So Anna, could you tell us a little bit about trauma care? Okay, yeah. So in this case, we see Allison come in. As we discussed, she's already intubated by the time we see her. Yes. And we also get some information from the doctors who are talking as she comes in. So some things I wrote down that I heard as everybody was talking and trying to figure out what was happening were GCS 6, BP 80 over 60, blunt head trauma, unequal breath sounds, right people dilated. Exactly. So I thought we could break that down, tell you what that really means. I feel like a lot of these terms throughout the show, people are screaming things out. Words are getting tossed around. Acronyms are getting tossed around. And I would predict that most people who watch this show It kind of just goes over your head. And it definitely went over mine. The first time I watched this, because it's not really what you're here for. You're here to watch Meredith and Derek kiss in the elevator. But, you know, that's what Olivia and I are here for now. I mean, before I went to med school, I really had no idea what these meant. I was just like, cool, medical jargon. I feel like I'm really speaking their language. Yeah, doctors yell things. Okay, so let's break down all the things that they did yell. So starting with when they said GCS of six. 
So GCS stands for Glasgow Coma Scale, which is a number that patients are given to kind of identify how conscious they are and how like responsive yes exactly so this score is determined by three categories that have to do with how you respond so the first one is eye-opening and it depends on if people will open their eyes spontaneously will they open their eyes in response to a verbal command will they open their eyes in response to pain the second category is verbal response so do they know where they are Are they confused? Are they able to speak at all? And then the third category is motor response. So can this person obey commands? If you ask them to raise their hand, can they do that? If they are in pain, can they localize that pain? Can they tell you where it is? Mm -hmm. Are they responding with their body in any way to pain? Or are they just not moving at all? Exactly. So if you are not opening your eyes, you have no verbal response, you have no motor response, you have a score of three, which is the lowest. Mm -hmm. This brings up one of my favorite mnemonics of med school. And I don't know why, because I've never ever had to use it. But maybe I will one day. Oh, hopefully not. Okay, I'm ready. It's GCS less than eight intubate and so intubate (laughs) so she is less than eight it's true she was intubated she needs to be intubated and as we noted she was already intubated by the time we saw her so at least they did that right we hope that she's hooked up to a vent (laughs) yes that would be ideal so as i go over the next things that they were yelling i'm going to teach you guys an algorithm that we usually use when we're assessing a trauma patient it's a super easy one it's just a b c d e and each letter stands for the steps that you're going to do in order So A stands for airway, and basically that just means you want to make sure that the patient's airway is open and protected. And we talked about that a bit already in terms of intubation. So you want to make sure that from this patient's mouth to their lungs, the tubes are all open, oxygen can get where it needs to go, and if that is not the case, then that patient needs to be intubated. Next, B stands for breathing, and we heard the doctor say unequal breath sounds. So a patient can have an open and protected airway, but they're still not breathing on their own, which was the case in this patient, as evidenced by them telling us that the breath sounds on each side were not equal. Olivia, do you know some reasons why you might not hear breath sounds or somebody not might not be breathing well when they come in from a trauma? Yeah, I think one of the first things that I think about in a trauma is something that we call attention pneumothorax. And I feel like that's mm-hmm. really super common. And it's basically when you get air inside your chest wall and then your lungs can't fill up like they should. Yeah, so you kind of get a collapsed part of your mm-hmm. lung, which is also likely what this patient had. What's C, Olivia? C, circulation? Yes. I'm, <laughs> I'm happy I got that right. I don't know why I said yes like that. <laughs> yes, yeah, C, circulation. And circulation is basically just the way that your blood is flowing to all of the rest of your body. So one way that we measured this is blood pressure. And they say in this scene, BP 80 over 60, which is blood pressure 80 over 60. And this is a very low blood pressure. Do you know what a normal blood pressure would be? Uh, 120 over 80 is usually what? we call normal. Yeah, that is right. And so in this case, she has very low blood pressure, which means that she, in this case, it is clear that she is probably bleeding somewhere internally. So that's pretty concerning. D is disability. So this is a time that you want to know, is this patient mentally stable? Have they had changes in mental status? This is generally a time that you would retake their Glasgow Coma Scale and assess how they are responding to you. If you're worried that there is something neurologically wrong, you can do a neuro exam. You can call neurosurgery. Mm -hmm. I was going to say one big thing I think about with disability is like any other causes for their GCS to be lower. So 
you know, is their blood sugar mm. really high or really low? Are they intoxicated with alcohol or drugs? Those are super common things that we yeah, want to look for too to make sure that we're not missing something. Yeah, definitely. And in the case of this patient, they mentioned that she has blunt head trauma, blunt just meaning directly to the head from the outside. And that may be the reason that she is having disability. And then they also mentioned that she has her right pupil dilated. And dilated just means that her pupil is big. So generally, your pupil should be the same size on both sides. And when you shine light in them, they should get smaller. And dilated on the right generally is going to mean when they shine light into the right eye, it is staying large instead of getting smaller the way that it's supposed to. And this is another sign that there is something neurologically wrong with this patient. So then lastly, E is exposure. And exposure basically means you want to expose this patient so that you are able to do a full exam and make sure that you have caught every injury that they have. So during this time, you want to cut off all the clothes or any clothes that they're still wearing. Make sure there aren't, you know, big bleeding cuts somewhere that you didn't see, other injuries, other signs of broken bones and you do what's called a log roll where everybody works together and you literally roll the patient over to make sure that there aren't abnormalities on their back that you Mm -hmm. missed or anywhere else on their body is there anything that you think i missed there no i think that was a great overview okay great so generally once you get through all of these the a b c d e you want to know what the cause of their injuries are and so usually one of the first things you want to do is imaging and in this case after the doctors had been yelling out all of these numbers and things that were happening somebody said okay she's ready for x-ray and i thought that this was a little bit weird because generally the first kind of imaging that we normally Mm do in the hospital with a trauma patient is called a fast Mm -hmm. exam and fast stands for focused assessment with sonography for trauma so that's a big fancy word way of saying <laughs> an ultrasound to make sure you're not bleeding yeah. internally. That is like standard that you should get a fast exam first for any trauma mm-hmm. patient. And I actually looked it up because I was wondering like maybe, you know, this episode came out in 2005. Maybe this wasn't a thing back then. And I did look it up and fast exams. Well, ultrasounds for trauma have been done since the All 70s. Right. And then the term fast was coined in 1996. So plenty of time to implement this. This had already been happening for 10 years. Yeah, I'm not sure why they thought that they should x-ray her before they were going to fast scan her. Do you do a fast exam if they're this sick or do you just take them back to the OR? No, it is a good point. Olivia's right. So if somebody is this unstable, you are pretty positive that they're bleeding. You know, blood pressure dropping, not doing Mm -hmm. well. You take them to surgery. and. If you're going to be cutting them open anyway, you can look for the bleeding Mm -hmm. there. Um, You really don't want to waste any time in this situation. And I mean, both the fast and the x-ray is pretty quick. Yeah. And I mean, maybe, I don't know, like, do you you think you would get an x-ray before? I mean, I know an x-ray is probably slightly faster than fast. Yeah, but but, I mean, I don't really know what they're looking for with an x-ray. Like, it would show them broken bones and maybe some kind of small bleeding, but... If they were going to do any imaging, it would most likely be a CT rather than an X-ray. Yeah, so, right. I don't so, know. I think regardless. Yeah, just medical management wise. An X-ray was a weird call. Yeah, yes. yeah. But when they actually get to surgery, they find something quite interesting mm-hmm. in this patient, don't they? They do. Tell me more. Oh, gosh. Well, how do you even explain this? First of all, Burke and Derek are both working simultaneously on this patient. So Derek is up at her skull, working on her brain, and then Burke is down in her chest, trying to find something that's causing some kind of rupture in her chest, which we don't really know what the rupture is. But this is the weird thing. Why was Burke doing this surgery? So he's a cardiothoracic surgeon, right? So 
if you're a cardiothoracic surgeon, right. you deal with your heart, you deal with the esophagus, like all the things that are in the, mm-hmm. the top of your chest, basically. I just assumed that when the, he first said, I found the cause of the rupture, I was like, rupture of what? Like my first thought was, is it a lung yeah. rupture? Because he said unequal breath yeah, sounds, but yeah. like, did she inhale the penis? Yeah, yeah you're that like, oh my God, unlikely. no, no, no. I think that if anything, it would have probably been in her stomach, depending on how much time had passed, because- the way that your body mm-hmm. works, like it, it has to go down your esophagus. That doesn't take very long, but then it kind of sits in your stomach for a little bit getting digested before it starts moving through your bowels. And so I'm wondering, I mean, they do say that kind of like the gastric juices, you know, their digestive juices. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Maybe it was in there for a while. And- it had to have made it at least to the stomach if the gastric juices yeah, got yeah. to it. But I've never heard of a stomach rupture. Have you heard um, of a stomach I've rupture? Not, I, if I had to assume anything, I was, I'm was. i guessing that it was an esophageal rupture. And that's why Burke was there. Because they knew that he... But if it was an esophageal rupture, then how did all the gastric juices get to it? Because I think... Well, because I think that the penis went down like into the stomach, was sitting there, but on its way down, maybe it caused some kind of rupture. It's just it weird. Is. It is weird. Because like, it just doesn't make it a lot of sense, is no, the point. Because no. like, generally, a rupture happens because something gets backed up. Like, you get some kind of obstruction. Or, like, pressure. Yeah. Generally, like, the common ones are you're getting, like, a bowel mm-hmm. rupture. Like, something gets stuck... Something creates uh, obstruction in your intestines and you build up a lot of pressure because things can't get mm-hmm. past it and that's why yeah. it ruptures. And your stomach is big enough and stretchy enough that it's pretty I don't see the stomach yeah. really rupturing. And if the esophagus was going to rupture, I would think it would be because something got stuck in the esophagus. Mm-hmm. And if something got stuck in the stomach, it shouldn't create such a pressure backup that the esophagus would rupture. So I think it's all a big question mark of like where it actually ended up and how it came to be that something ruptured. But in the end, Burke does pull out this foreign material from this woman and has no idea what it is. And Meredith promptly chimes in. Which is honestly hilarious. Why did Burke not recognize it? I really don't know. He has one of his own. You'd think that he'd recognize it, but (laughs) apparently not. Clearly he is a a big fan of his own with the way he's been Uh, acting. Yes, yes. God complex and all. I think Bailey calls him cocky. We said that. She does. It's called cocky for a reason. (laughs) But Meredith Meredith luckily chimes in because she knows exactly what it is. And she says, I think that's his penis. (laughs) What is this? Does anyone know what this is? Oh, my God. What? Spit it out, Gray. She bit it off. Bit off what? That's his penis. And from there on, she is in charge of the penis for the rest of the episode but that was honestly a great trauma case for the show because i feel like it really introduced us to how you take care of traumas either correctly or incorrectly and kind of how the patients fare after a trauma assessment like that because she does have to go back to the operating room once more and it kind of shows you that trauma isn't just like a one and done thing it's really touch and go for a lot of these patients so it's really important to keep an eye on them and see how they're doing throughout you know, the course of their illness or the disease. Yeah, definitely. And another thing that I actually took note of in this was at the end of this surgery, I think Meredith asked, like, is she going to be okay? And <laughs> this is just another funny thing of, I feel like them just throwing around any medical word that they can come up with. Derek goes, if she can fight off the infection, she'll be fine. And I literally wrote in all caps, what infection, yeah, what infection are we talking about here? <laughs> Last time I checked, infection was not what we were concerned about here. We're concerned about her either esophageal or stomach or... Whatever rupture. Intestinal rupture, something ruptured. No infection. We're worried about her bleeding. How did she get an infection? Where did it come from? Yeah. 
I think that it was a, a very interesting both surgical scene and then kind of the care afterwards. Definitely, definitely. But thanks for taking us through trauma. Um, yeah, of course. Okay, so then on that note, Olivia, do you want to give us our mid-show fun fact before we take a break? Oh, I'd love to. So I think this really fits in well with what we've been talking about these past few minutes about kind of the realities of surgery and life in the hospital and kind of all of the terminology that they throw around. But one thing that might be surprising for everyone is that during the first season of Grey's Anatomy, there was actually only one real doctor on staff. So the writers <laughs> would come up with these outrageous scenarios. They would kind of like take headline stories and mix and match and make them into a series. So Dr. Zoe Clack, I hope I'm saying that right, but she is actually a like television producer, writer, and like editor, but she was also like a medical doctor and consultant. So she was on set of Grey's oh, Anatomy wow. during the first season to help them catch all these, I guess, misinterpretations of medicine as they went along. But I don't know if that really worked. <laughs> I'm going to personally go on the record and say it there didn't. You know. Well, she did her she best. Did. She did. As one person can. <laughs> I, but I, I feel like it gets better throughout the show. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, that's my fun fact for you guys. Excellent. Well, then we'll see you after the break. Enjoying the podcast? We want to hear from you. Visit our website at mythvsmedpod.com to ask us questions about anything medicine in Grey's Anatomy. You can also follow our socials, stay up to date on the latest Myth vs. Med events, and join our email list from our website or linktree at linktr.ee slash mythvsmedpod. You can also help support the podcast along with medical and scientific research by making a donation. Now back to the show. All right, welcome back. All right, hi guys. We're going to go ahead and get into our second topic. All right, so in the middle of the show, Meredith and George understandably go up to the newborn nursery to kind of look at the babies and brighten up their day and increase, I guess, their mood. Listen, this is so relatable. It is, isn't it? I could spend all day on the newborn floor. So Anna and I both did our newborn rotations when we were on our pediatric service. And oh my gosh, when I tell you that our only job was sitting there and cuddling babies if we wanted to. You get to, you know, play with their little feet and their fingers. And oh my God, it just makes your day so so much better. It really does. I there was when I was on the newborn service, and mind you, I didn't go and do this when I was on other services. True, <laughs> but there was this one baby whose mom had a traumatic delivery, and she herself was in the hospital, and the dad couldn't be there all the time. He had to work, and so the one baby was in the nursery by himself a lot. And I would literally go once I was done on service for the day. I would go and I would just like cuddle oh with this baby. Oh my gosh, I'm sure, I'm sure that everyone was doing that. Oh, it was so necessary. And all the parents, oh my love god, it. I love all the it. parents love like showing their babies off, and it's the cutest thing. They're so happy. I know. And we oh have god, yeah. So so George and Meredith understandably go and do this to kind of brighten up their day. But when Meredith's yeah. up there, she sees one of these babies crying and seems to turn blue. Now, I'm going to say seems to be because it's obviously CGI. This baby is not turning blue because it is the most fake blue I've ever seen in my life. And it like transitions in from normal to like slides into blue and back. If you ever have seen Willy Wonka, like the blueberry girl that turns into a blueberry. Yes, that's what it looked like. What she describes to (laughs) Dr. Burke is that this baby turned blue and it was having a tet spell. 
What's a tet spell? Tet spell refers to a baby with tetralogy of Fallot, which is a congenital heart defect. So a tet spell is mm-hmm. super common in tetralogy of Fallot, and it basically means that when the baby starts crying, the lips and the fingers will start turning blue. So kind of talking about heart defects, when a baby is born, they always check to make sure that baby's heart sounds good. There's nothing that they hear that's wrong. The baby is having good oxygen to the rest of their body. They're turning pink and they're breathing okay. But with some babies, you have Mm -hmm. these heart defects that they're born with, and that's what we call congenital heart defects. And so when we think about these heart defects, we kind of think about two buckets. We think about cyanotic and acyanotic, which basically means blue babies or pink babies. So cyanotic is when a baby's turning blue, and then acyanotic is a pink baby but is still having some kind of trouble with oxygenating their body. Yeah, I've heard it also called as like blue babies or gray babies. Oh, yeah. Sometimes with acyanotic babies, like they're not turning blue, but they get a kind of dusky color. They're still not circulating well. They're not the pink color they're supposed to be, but they're also not like blue. Yeah, that's perfect. So the acyanotic, so like the grayer babies, um, usually it's something with an abnormal connection between different parts of the heart. So for general anatomy, all you really need to know for the heart is that deoxygenated blood um, that's coming from the rest of your body comes into the right side of the heart and leaves the right side of the heart to go to the lungs to get oxygen. And then that oxygenated blood goes to your left side of your heart, and that's what distributes it to the rest of your body. And so when these babies are turning gray or turning blue, it's because they're not getting oxygen that they need to the rest of their tissues in their body. And so that's what we mean with the gray and the blue babies. Right, exactly. So you can kind of divide the heart pretty straightforward from the left heart has oxygen and the right heart doesn't have oxygen. Exactly. So Meredith obviously sees this baby turning blue and is worried about the baby. And so one of the first things that you do for a workup is to just listen to baby's heart. And normally when they're born, you'll hear a murmur and they'll say, okay, this is either a benign murmur or a not benign murmur. And you kind of have to work it up if you think it's something serious. So what is a murmur, Anna? A murmur is basically a sound that you wouldn't expect to hear when you listen to the heart so generally when you listen to somebody's heart there's kind of two main heart sounds and we literally we call them love and dub like you hear love dub love dub and when there's a murmur you hear like an extra sound and it can sound a lot of different ways depending on causes yeah exactly doctors go through years and years of training to understand all these murmurs and (laughs) i would be lying if i said i understood them all right now so It is definitely, you have an appreciation for cardiologists when you realize how many murmurs there are and how difficult they actually are to hear. You really do. When I like, if I can like recognize that there even is a murmur period, I'm like so proud of myself. Like, yes, I did it. Murmur, murmur, (laughs) murmur. I found it. (laughs) Yes, literally. So like whenever you have something anatomically wrong with the heart, you can hear extra or different heart sounds. And so you can hear that with a stethoscope when you're listening to a baby's heart. And that's kind of the first clue to clue you in that there might be something wrong with the heart. And so like if you hear a baby with a really loud murmur, it's very prominent, then that's something that you're more worried about. And so with the congenital heart defects, some of the things that you can do to work this up, if the baby is okay and like seems to be breathing okay and doesn't seem to be in too much distress, you can just do a normal echocardiogram, which is basically an ultrasound of the heart looking to make sure the blood is pumping okay. So weird to me because I feel like when you have a newborn with a murmur, When do you not get an echo? I feel like it would be very rare to hear a murmur that you are so positive it's benign that you're not going to get an echo. It's a pretty easy test. And they do heart 
exam, I guess if you want to call it that, before right. a baby's discharged. So at 24 hours of life, they are able to be discharged from the hospital. But before then, they do a heart test. It's basically just measuring the blood oxygenation at the fingers and then at the toes. So making sure that they're getting oxygen all over their body. And so that's kind of like a fail safe. But I do agree, Anna. I feel like there are some murmurs that I mean, you obviously know right away that it's something pathological or not right and you need to get it checked out. But then there are also murmurs that a lot of babies will be born with because it's a physiological phenomenon that's supposed to be happening. And and I don't really know how yeah. they distinguish between the two of those. At least in my experience, which of course is very limited at this point, whenever there was a baby with a murmur, they got okay. an echo. Mm-hmm. Like even if they were like, this is almost certainly fine. Echo is, it's an ultrasound of the heart. It takes a few minutes they just do it. It's not expensive. So those are some babies that if you're not worried about them, you can get them an echo, get some like pulse ox or see how much oxygen they're getting to their limbs. And there's no big deal. But you also have these babies who if they're having severe features, so it looks like they're not breathing at all. Their oxygenation is really, really bad. Um, It looks like they're having like heart failure, no pulses, things like that. You're really worried about that baby and you want to admit them to the neonatal ICU and you want to get an urgent echocardiogram and you want to do something called prostaglandin administration, which is to keep parts of their connections open in their heart to make sure they're actually getting oxygenated blood. And this is a super scary moment because this baby just came out and you think that they're fine. Then one second later, they're just turning blue and they're not breathing and they're not getting what they're supposed to be getting to their body. So super scary. And there are some defects that really like this baby is going to need surgery as soon Mm -hmm. as possible. Like they're out and they're into surgery. So I actually have a story about this because my older sister, Maria, she was actually born pretty blue and they knew right away that something wasn't right. And so they immediately administered that prostaglandin. They were getting all the pictures of her heart, but she was also at a smaller hospital. So they didn't really have the resources to do what they needed to to fix the heart. No Seattle Grays. No Seattle Grays here, but there was a Michigan Medicine just an hour away and even less with LifeLight. So they took my parents and my sister and they flew up to Michigan Medicine, where we are now doing oh, our med kidding. school. Wait, I didn't know that. Yes, yes. And so she had a surgery for her heart when she was three days old. And so she had a surgery so here at Michigan Medicine. And she is alive and well Aww. and doing great at 27 years old now. <laughs> wow. So I think that's just a super that's cool story. And it's really a testament to the work that these surgeons are able to do. Exactly. I mean, even with the tetralogy of Fallot, which is what we find out that this baby has, I think the first surgery was in the 50s when they did the first surgery for this. And since then, yeah, it was a while ago, but the success rate for it has been great. So there's a 94% survival rate 20 years after an operation for tetralogy of Fallot, which is just unheard of with a lot of cardiac surgeries. And so it's really cool to see that happening. But We can actually talk a little bit about the surgery that they did because I think it's really cool. Yeah, they're so interesting. Both in terms of the the caliber that they have to work with. I mean, these hearts are teeny, teeny, tiny. I was going to say, like, think about a newborn Mm -hmm. baby and then this is like – the tiniest little yes, I know. It's the size of a walnut. So think of a walnut and think of having to operate on something that size. It's just crazy. It's crazy. And like a very precise a operation. Very precise too. And like very important for the rest of their life. Wow. They're going to have this inside. It's just so crazy. So Burke yeah. ends up doing the surgery, which 
again, I have issues with because usually it's a pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon that's specialized. Burke is doing all Burke kinds doing all. of surgeries that he should not be no, doing no. in this episode. I mean, uh, I remember when my sister got her operation, they had one of the best pediatric cardiothoracic surgeons that specialized in this surgery doing her surgery because it is such a serious thing. Highly yes. specialized. And so I think surgeons. that it's just so funny that Burke goes, oh yeah, I'll get this baby's heart fixed up right away. No problem. No problem at all. Oh my God. <laughs> but so he says that they do ventriculotomy. So that's true. But it basically just means yeah. that they're fixing the the ventricular septal defect that is present in Tetralogy of Fallot. So they're putting a little patch over it basically mm-hmm. to close that up. So aside from doing the ventriculotomy to fix the ventricular septal defect, they also usually fix the pulmonary artery problems as well. And so they'll kind of do these either concurrently or with separate surgeries, depending on how the baby's able to handle it. So for a kid with Tetralogy of Fallot, they usually do a complete heart repair by one year of age. But like I said, really high success rate for this surgery. And so I'm really glad that Meredith actually stepped in and was like, hey, But do you want to talk about the ethical dilemmas behind that? Because I was floored. I have so much to say. It really is interesting because this is a case where I don't know what other doctors were involved in the PEDS team that may or may not have caught this at some Mm -hmm. point. But this is a pretty life-threatening condition like we've talked about. Honestly, it seems like given that they brought the baby to surgery right away, that whatever they saw in the echo was probably pretty severe. And if Meredith hadn't spoken up, that could be a place where a patient could be put in harm's way. But at the same time, it for sure was unethical for her to insert herself into this situation with this patient that was not Mm -hmm. hers. And when the intern who is this patient's doctor comes in and sees Meredith listening to his heart, Meredith says to her, labs weren't ordered for this baby. Why weren't labs Mm -hmm. ordered? And if she knows that labs weren't ordered, it means she looked yeah. at his chart. And looking at a patient who is not your patient's oh my gosh. chart. Big no-no. That is something that you can get fired for, like on the spot. And the fact that she went both behind the doctors that were taking care of the patient's back and then like behind the baby's back itself went right toward the parents and was like, <laughs> all right, I'm going to tell you all the things. Well, that was when I was really like, this is not okay anymore. It was one thing to get involved and to confront the other doctor about it. But then after the other doctor said no, the fact that she went and talked to the parents behind the other doctor's back crosses all kinds of And lines. after she had talked to Burke about the baby and Burke said, no, it's not our baby. We were not consulted. This baby's doctor made it very clear that she did not want Meredith exactly, involved. Exactly. So basically what ends up happening is that Meredith is talking to the parents. Burke comes up after the intern or is it an intern? Yeah, I was going to say she was an intern because she asked Meredith when she's sitting in the end. She's like, as an intern, do you feel? And then Meredith goes terrified 100% mm-hmm. of the time. Definitely. I was like, yes. And that fits into the whole thing of like, what are we doing? I don't know what's happening. How are we supposed to be doing what we're I supposed know. to be doing as interns? I think that's a very pervasive theme throughout the entire show as they're kind of getting their foot yeah. in the door and kind of getting a foothold on how For to sure. do things in the hospital. Yeah. I just was really thinking so much about, in this case, Meredith was right. And so it kind of turns the table in us thinking, okay, it's good that she intervened. Mm -hmm. But had she not been right, the emotional harm that it causes, like that she would have gone to these parents and said, your baby might have this life-threatening condition when the baby's doctor had already said, no, it's fine. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, I feel like it's almost 
along the same lines as Izzy performing sutures on this random person that doesn't have citizenship, she doesn't really think about her actions before doing them. And I wonder if Meredith yeah. is kind of acting before she really thinks about what the consequences could be if she was wrong in this situation. This episode just shows a lot of surgeons with really big heads. Between Burke and his fight for mm-hmm. chief, and Izzy not really thinking, and then Meredith kind of stepping in where it isn't mm-hmm. her place, I think that this episode shows a lot about the kind of dynamic between surgery and medicine doctors yeah. and kind of the interactions there. And I mean, it's definitely dramatic in this episode, and obviously it varies by individuals, but it's definitely something that you see in mm-hmm. real life where. Some doctors over others, regardless of specialties, somehow get it in their heads that they're better than yeah. other people. And like we hear this peds resident at the beginning says to Meredith, you know, I'm a doctor too. And I mean, she, she is. I mean, in this case, obviously she ended up being wrong, but it it is this kind of dynamic of both surgeons either thinking that they're better than other doctors and or other doctors assuming that surgeons are going to yeah, think that they're better exactly. than them. I mean, we see the big head come from Burke when he comes and rescues Meredith. He he goes, which means I can do whatever I want. I literally wrote down that quote too. He goes, I'm an attending. I can do what I want. My jaw dropped to the floor. (laughs) I mean, just the amount of ignorance and just so crazy. Well, and he had said himself to Meredith before, this is against the rules. Mm -hmm. This is crossing a line. Mm I'm not intervening. And then the fact that he stepped in for her like that really felt like he was just doing it to prove that the surgeons were going to win somehow. He stepped in not for her, but for himself, because when he asked Richard, when did I stop being your number one guy? He said, oh, because you don't do enough. You do the bare minimum and you don't go above and beyond. And then Bert goes, <gasps> I didn't even think about that. Is that why he did that? You're so right. Because he saw Meredith and he goes, oh, Meredith had come up to me with this suggestion. I bet if I did this, then Dr. Weber would see that I've been You're doing so right. above and beyond. Oh, my God. He saw the opportunity and he swooped in and stole a patient. So, yeah, I think there were lots of ethical dilemmas in this episode. Honestly, when we look at the show now being through, what, like two years of medical school, it's stuff that I wouldn't have really mm-hmm. thought about beforehand. And now that we've kind of experienced no. it firsthand, it's really interesting to see how they're playing it out on screen. It is interesting. And I mean, I have certainly had run-ins with surgeons who maybe have let it go to their heads. And don't get me wrong, other doctors yes. also <laughs> have let it, things go to your heads. But like, there are certainly times you get a consult and somebody just treats you, and especially being a med mm-hmm. student, the way that we're talked to sometimes or that mm-hmm. interns are talked to or that one attending who thinks they're better talks to another, it, like it's kind of appalling. Mm-hmm. Very true. I totally agree. And I think that it's honestly something to highlight because not everyone thinks about it. Well, that's one of the big things I had. The only other ethical dilemma I really had for this episode was actually regarding Izzy and then the Chinese-speaking patient is that you would never treat a patient that doesn't speak English or the language that you're supposed to be treating them with because they need to be able to consent and they need to be able to understand what's happening. And you would never talk to a patient without an interpreter. It's just – it's unheard of. Yeah. And I mean, she says like, oh, I can't get the interpreter on the phone or whatever. But like, okay, so then you wait. Yeah. You don't just go, okay, I guess I'll just stitch you up while I wait. And then the fact that she just immediately calls Christina and says, I, you know, I can't, I can't, I don't know what's happening. What is she saying? That was wild. And Christina, you could just see fuming. As she oh my should. Gosh, yes, absolutely. And she goes, I, no, no, <laughs> absolutely not. 
She literally goes, she goes, what she, she goes, can you talk to her? She goes, she no. goes, no. She goes, she's like, why? She goes, and I'm Korean, by the way. So literally so racist i could not believe that izzy had actually been like you know yeah just come and talk to this patient for me i mean just crazy 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 this feels like something that i would at least hope is maybe a little bit better in medicine today but i mean you do see things i mean there's a lot of even unintentional yeah bias and racism Mm -hmm. that you see and so i think that that was a really important thing to highlight as we were talking about ethical dilemmas in the episode definitely all right so Going away from the more serious side of things, the ethical dilemmas, what was your biggest takeaway from this episode, Anna? Oh, my biggest takeaway. Honestly, I think that my big takeaway really did have to do with kind of the hierarchy dynamics that we saw in this show. It made me think a lot about the hierarchies and the roles that everybody plays. I just really saw this as kind of a recurrent theme of these surgeons really letting their power go to their heads and thinking pretty carelessly Mm -hmm. and also just the divide between attendings and residents and different specialties it actually made me think a lot about some of my experiences Mm -hmm. we still see this a lot today especially in the divide between the levels of the Mm -hmm. hierarchy for example on surgery when I was on my rotation so every week we go to grand rounds which is kind of a big conference where they talk about some important topic in the department um, with everybody there. So all the attendings and residents and anybody who is working on the team is there. And on the first day, you know, they tell us where to show up. And I go meet another med student. We sat down and a resident came up to us and was like, hey, guys, come here. And we're like, what? And they're like, just so you know, you should really go sit on that other side. Like, this is the side where the attending. Oh, gosh. And I just thought it was so interesting. We were like, oh, really? And they were like, I know it's kind of messed up, but it's still just how we do it. Generally, the attendings sit on this side of the room and everybody else sits on the other side. I never realized that. But now that you say that, that's completely true. They always sit on the left. Oh, my gosh. That is just crazy. Kind of along the same lines, I think one of my biggest takeaways was the one of the quotes that Meredith says at the end when she goes, boundaries don't keep other people out. They fence you in. And I think this is just really speaking more to a takeaway from a like personal standpoint of when you're in the hospital Mm -hmm. with these people for like hundreds of hours and they're really like your support system and you go through this really hard stuff every day i mean we saw george running the code pager losing patients i mean it's really hard some days i mean i think to have those connections with people is super important and so we saw meredith at the end kind of cave and she goes i can't believe i caved but she ended up letting George and Izzy move in with her. And so I feel like it's just a really big takeaway to keep those boundaries down to keep yourself from being fenced in. So I think that was a really big takeaway for me from this episode. Yeah, totally. I feel like that is a really good transition too to what I know was one of your favorite parts and also one of my favorite parts of this episode. Oh my gosh, yes. I think we should play the Oh my gosh, please. Who here feels like they have no idea what they're doing? I mean, are we supposed to be learning something? Because I don't feel like I'm learning anything. Except how not to sleep. You know, it's like there's this wall, and the attendings and the residents are over there being surgeons, and we're over here being... Suturing, code running, lab delivering, penis minders. I hate being an intern. Absolutely iconic and so relatable. Yeah, I think this is actually like when you, like, click on Grey's Anatomy on Netflix, it's like... It's the preview. so real. It's so real. It's so real. And this is honestly one of my favorite parts about Grey's Anatomy as I've gotten older and then more invested in medicine, obviously, is just the relatability of all the quotes that they say. I mean, Meredith especially, but just it hits home. Yeah. So I think that, again, this episode was 
full of ethical dilemmas, but also just really relatable feelings from the interns and everyone in the hospital, honestly. And you really got good insight into Burke's mind and kind of how he thinks about things. Mm -hmm. We got a really good peek into how Derek takes care of his patients. Yeah, even if it is not realistic at all. Yes, exactly. But you know what the (laughs) biggest realistic part was? When they finish their shift and they're all just so happy to be out of the hospital. They're like dancing in the parking lot. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I mean, that is the happiest that I think we ever see Meredith. Like maybe in the entire... I think that she's just elated. (laughs) She's like, oh, the sun is on my face and I'm free and wow. And I have some new roommates. And everything is great. So again, I think that's one of the most relatable things from, I think, the entire series is just the the happiness of ending a shift and going out of the hospital. It feels like you're reborn. (laughs) Yeah, literally seeing this yes again. yes <laughs> i think that's it do you have anything else no thank you for joining us for this episode it's been so much fun thank you guys so much for listening we really appreciate it we'll see you next time thank you so much for joining us for this episode we hope you leave knowing more than you did before about what is myth and what is medicine if you're curious about where we're getting our information you can check out our sources in the episode description If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform and share it with friends. Don't forget to visit our website at mythvsmedpod.com to ask us a question, follow our socials, and subscribe to our email list or make a donation. We appreciate your support and we hope you continue to follow along with us on this journey.